0: We have been on a series for the last three weeks called The End is Near, where we've been talking about the end as in the end of everything, right? The end of the world, uh, how the second coming of Jesus might happen, the ultimate destiny of humankind, and how this human experiment comes to an end. And we've been unpacking three eschatological views that's a big word. I told you that eschatology simply means the study of last things, right? It's the study of end, the end times. And so we've been looking uh, at Revelation a little bit and other prophetic texts. Revelation 1.1 in the ESV says, the revelation, that word in Greek, that revelation is apocalypsis, which means to unveil or to uncover or to reveal. So it's really important that when you're, when you're reading the book of Revelation, something is being revealed, something is being revealed, uncovered, and I want you to notice who is being revealed. Go to the next verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Understand that, that, that who is being revealed is Jesus, right? The book of Revelation is unveiling Jesus the Messiah. So before we get lost in symbolism, before we have discussions over whether it should be read literally or figuratively, Right? All 22 chapters, all 404 verses, all 9,852 words are pointing to one person, and that's Jesus. If you miss that, there's no reason to continue reading. Right? It's all pointing to Jesus. It's one of the hills that we die on, that it's all about Jesus. In his book, It's Not About Me, Max Licato, begins by reminding us that the world once believed that uh, the, the earth was the center of the universe. And really, the earth was the center of everything until this guy, Nicholas Copernicus, came along and started to challenge the ruling thought of the day. And like most out-of-the-box thinkers, he was declared to be crazy, but he would not go away quietly. His, his naysayers continued to argue that the earth was the stabilizing force in the universe, the center of all things. And Copernicus kept saying, you're, you're wrong. It's not the earth, it's the sun. And of course, today we know that Copernicus was right. And in his book Lakato says, what Copernicus did for the earth, God has done for the human soul. Tapping the collective shoulders of humanity, he points to the sun, his son, and says, behold the center of it all. He goes on to say this, that when God looks at the center of the universe, he doesn't look at you, me, Right when heaven's stagehands direct the spotlight toward the star of the show, I need no sunglasses, no light falls on me. God does not exist to make a big deal out of us, we exist to make a big deal out of Him. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's all about Him. Listen, all of Scripture we could say is the unveiling of Jesus. Right? It all points to him. Every leader, every prophet, every story, everything that's like, wow, that's pretty weird, it all points back to him. So as we continue our dive into Revelation, we're turning the spotlight on Jesus. To learn more about him, yes, absolutely, absolutely. But, but not just to learn, because knowledge is incomplete. Right, Knowledge without action is incomplete, and knowledge without worship is incomplete. Like, we're not just to, to gather information about him. We're, we're, we're gathering who he is, right? The essence of, of what makes him the Messiah, what makes him the Christ. And, and out of that, there is a response that should be coming from us. And the one response when he is unveiled, when Jesus is revealed to us, the one appropriate response, scripture says, is worship. Is worship. Listen, John's vision. We believe it was the same John who wrote the, the Gospel of John. It's debatable, but you know, maybe we we'll talk about that at another time. Part of his vision was this glimpse into, into the heavenly throne room. And he was told to write down what, what he sees. And, and so he, he begins to write down his, his vision, Revelation 4. He says that once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, so get the picture, with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the thro- throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as, as crystal. I mean, how, how do you describe the indescribable? Well, John's doing the best he can. Right, trying, pulling out some, some, some imagery of, 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 how, of trying to put into words what, what he is seeing. And, and then his vision continues into chapter 5. Verse 1, he says, Then I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. Now, the right hand in Scripture, it, it, it always represents power and authority and sovereignty. In this case, it's all being ascribed to God. And then there is a scroll with seven seals. When you read apocalyptic writing, understand that a number is not just a number. It's symbolic of something else. It's trying to communicate an image or a story. Now, seven in the Judeo-Christian world always is symbolic of completion or perfection. And so what's ever on the scroll is complete and it is perfect. As such, no one was found to be worthy to open the seals and to read the scroll. And so John says this, verse two, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Now notice the question, right? It's not who is strong enough to break the seals. It's not who is smart enough to break the seals. The question that's being asked is a question of character. He says, who is worthy, who has the character, the righteousness, the holiness, to discern the true nature of God. But verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. And then John says, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Now notice the gap, notice the gap between what was needed and what natural, normal people can do. What was needed No one on on heaven, on earth, under the earth, right? The imagery is big. It's it's hyperbolic for a reason. No one was found to be worthy to do what needed to be done. All of creation falls short except, John's about to find out, one. Verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, see, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, the elders are a rollover from chapter four, right? And this idea that, that, that there are, are, are 24 elders gathered around the throne and worshiping nonstop. Now, imagery of what, who do the elders represent? There, there, there's a lot of talk and debate on that. It's possible. One that I like is this idea that it represents the 12 original tribe of Israel. It represents the the 12 apostles. And the imagery is it's bringing everything from the Old Testament and everything from the New Testament. And it is symbolic of every person from every generation that calls upon the name of Jesus who will gather around the throne in worship. So, so catch the imagery of, w- of what's taking place, right? It's, if you're a follower of Christ and you don't like to sing, bummer, dude, right? It's gonna, be a, it's gonna be a strange eternity for you. And so elders, they represent God's people through all of the ages, from every generation of time. Humanity is gathered around the throne and they're gathered for one reason. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. Now a, a lion uh, is, is a standard symbol for the Messiah. It's a symbol of power. And this was the type of Messiah the Jews were expecting, right? They were expecting a lion to come that would devour Rome. They were expecting uh, a, a, a lion to roar to break Israel free from Roman oppression with, with the power and ferocity of a lion to overcome adversaries and to set them free. That's what Israel was looking for, Okay. So John is mourning. John is mourning the fact that no one can answer the character question. And then someone calls out to John. He says, John, 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 why are you weeping? Quit being a baby. John is like, stop crying. Lift up your head, because the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. Right now, Judah is one of the 12 original tribes, and it is the lineage that Jesus came from right? Now, in ancient times, if your, if your family crest or if your coat of arms had a lion on it, right? Some of you, maybe you know your, your family crest, right? It was a symbol of power. It meant that the house was strong. And so when it gives this imagery of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, it's, it's communicating something. The same is said about, uh, about Jesus. It, it's pointing to a conquering, victorious king that would descend from Judah's lineage. And the one it points to is one person, And his name is Jesus. Now, catch the imagery. Who is worthy? No one is found in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. John weeps. The angelic being says, John, stop crying. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He's worthy. And then John quickly turns his gaze to see what the angel was talking about. Verse 6, it says, then I... Wait, 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 what? I saw a lamb. Now, the angel just said, it's the lion, that triumphed. And so you would think that when John turns, he's going to see a lion. He's going to see a roaring, a, a, a fierce lion. And yet when he turns, he sees a lamb. And the, and the word here in Greek is, actually means a, a, a little lamb. One might say Mary's little. Okay, skip that part, all right? I don't know what you're like in here, okay? Now, now listen. I don't know. Just, just try to work with me here it kind of defies logic, right? Uh, a, a lion is promised and a lamb is delivered. This picture in Revelation 5, it's, it's one of unmatched power and unmatched glory and unmatched majesty. The, the, this is why the one who, 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 is, who is worthy is worthy. This is what sets him apart from the rest of all of creation. This is what ushered in the triumph. And then he says it in verse six. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne. And this is the unveiling. This is the revealing, right? The the picture of this powerful king of revelation that defies our expectation. We look for a lion. We look for the pure brute force that mercilessly devours enemies. And instead, we're introduced to this little lamb that was slain. John's like, I, I I was expecting a lion, Look at what he says. Then I saw a lamb looking at it that it has been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, right? Gets a little freaky. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. Now, remember, a number is not a number, right? A horn Represents power; it always has, even in some cultures today. And so, seven is that number of completion. And so, what it's saying is that the lamb that was slain possesses all power, right? All authority, all dominion has been given to the lamb that was slain. Now, catch the imagery of what, of what John is saying here. It's this: it's as little. We're expecting a lion, but it's this little lamb. And John says, "There's something about this lamb." who looks like he'd just been slain, and that word there is a violent murder, is, is, is the imagery it's bringing up, and he's saying, cat's something important, it's a lamb, but this lamb possesses all the power in the universe, all dominion is his. We're expecting a lion, and we're given a lamb, but do not be mistaken, he is a lion in that he is mighty, He is a lion in that he has triumphed and that he has conquered. But catch this, but the way that he's mighty and the way that he conquered is through the way of a lamb and sacrificial love. The lamb triumphs over evil by dying for evil people, demonstrating the the ferocity of a lion in his love. How is he victorious? Not by shedding the blood of his enemies, but by shedding his own blood. On the cross is where his enemies are defeated. The Lamb of God. And then we have to ask, what did the, the lamb accomplish? Understand that, 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 that when God flexes his muscle, it looks like a lamb. right? God's strength comes out through sacrifice. And so on the cross, what did the lamb accomplish? Look at verse 9. Because you were slain and with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. What, 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 what did the lamb accomplish? Why does he have all authority? Why does he possess all dominion? Why does he possess all power? Not because he destroyed his enemies, but because he died for them. Listen, listen, listen to how John begins to wrap up this, this, this vision that he sees. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Let's say that again. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is within them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise, and honor, and glory, and power, forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped him. Go back to Revelation 4. It says, Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is, is to come. Verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord, and our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Understand, understand something. Listen, listen. I understand our need today for space to declare our needs to God. Right, There needs to be space where we can come and in our worship we sing songs like give me strength in the battle and hope when I'm hopeless and vision for a cloudy future and this is how I fight my battles and Jesus is fighting for me and the proclamation that I am an overcomer. right All of those things that God pours into us and gives to us the benefit of being a follower of him. I get the need for that and some of my favorite worship songs lean that direction. However, Let me put on my worship hat here, which hasn't been put on for 15 years. Let's not forget that worship is first about him, not what he's going to give to you. right? It's first about him. We should pause when the songs that are coming out of the church, Global, capital C, when the songs coming out of the church are more about what he can do for us than the glory of who he is and what is expected we do for him. So 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 when 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 they say behold the 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 center of it all well that that that's what we're going to do here because you cannot you cannot read revelation 5 you cannot read the glory of the lamb and then just move on without giving the lamb what the lamb deserves